Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. Today on the show, some legislators and communities are discussing whether communities should be allowed to raise more local money through fees or taxes. The major concerns is if we don't have the capability of raising a tax or being able to raise funds, then where are we going to get it from? We'll find out how a group of middle schoolers is helping Laramie restaurants go green. The fact that we changed something in our community is just kind of amazing. And a Jackson climber who sees friends die by avalanche and addiction creates a common solution. People kept trying to chase that initial high and they always wanted more, 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 more. And Wyoming's congressional delegation discusses the president's budget. Listen to those stories and much more coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming is facing a budget deficit mostly due to revenue shortfalls from energy companies and a loss in sales tax revenue. Lawmakers are starting to realize that they may need to raise money through taxes or fee increases. But while education funding has the attention of lawmakers, local government, specifically cities and towns, fear that they are being left out of the revenue conversation. Without more money, communities say they will continue to struggle to provide services. So with that comes fully, um, they all have the 380 vacation hours. Earlier this month, the Joint Revenue Committee met to hold its first of a series of meetings on how to raise revenue to fund state services following a number of funding reductions. Mineral severance taxes provide 70% of the state's revenue. Because of the downturn in energy prices, the state's share of that money has decreased. Senate Revenue Committee Chairman Ray Peterson says it is time citizens make up for that deficit. We need more citizens' participation in those revenue sources, that revenue stream, to help us get out of this boom-bust cycle that we've been in for the last 100 years in Wyoming. I mean, it's, it's time to face reality. Local government is hoping to get its share of the money, but during the meeting, State Senator Dave Kinski told some city officials that the courts have mandated that most of the new state revenue will go to education. And no matter how much it costs, the legislature has to fund it. And the legislature can't use a lack of money as any excuse. And quote, all other considerations in the budget are secondary, unquote. So where does that put local government? Cities and towns may be forced to implement their own tax increases. In Laramie, Mayor Andy Somerville says the city council is kicking around several ideas. Beer tax or entertainment tax, things along those lines that the council could implement. We're also looking at some of the exemptions, like right now professional services are exempt from sales tax. If you're a lawyer or a consultant, you don't have to charge sales tax on that bill. For Laramie, that's a pretty big thing. We have a pretty good brain trust in Laramie, a lot of consulting going on there. Wyoming Association of Municipalities Director Rick Kaysen is kicking the tires on a municipal tax that could provide funds outside of a sales tax. Specifically for the residents within that municipality to raise revenues that would be able to meet some of the requirements, the needs within that municipality. Kaysen says WAM is conducting a revenue survey to see what other states are doing. But this is not something cities and towns can do on their own. They will need legislative action to be able to generate their own revenue. Right now, communities can impose and ask voters to support a sales tax. Kaysen notes that communities lose sales tax money when the state faces a bust, which has led to many layoffs and budget cuts across the state. Douglas Mayor Bruce Jones says the ability to raise local revenue is a must. The major concerns is if we don't have the capability of raising a tax or being able to raise funds, then where are we going to get it from? If we have a downtick in, in uh, sales tax and we have no help anywhere else, we have to cut all our services down like we've been doing. 
Communities have had similar requests thwarted over the years for any number of reasons. Laramie Representative and House Minority Floor Leader Kathy Connolly was among those that didn't want Laramie to be forced to raise its own revenue, believing that was up to the state. But she's changing her mind. I've become convinced that that's reasonable and that the state restrictions on municipalities and counties for raising their own taxes probably need to be lessened. And what we do here in Albany County, what Laramie might choose to do, might be different than what Cheyenne or Gillette or Sundance chooses to do. In other words, if some places want to focus on fee increases, they can. If others want a specific type of tax, they can get that too. The issue figures to get a lot more discussion before anything gets implemented. And it might backfire locally, where citizens may rebel when it comes to paying more for services. But Mayor Jones is not worried. It may be a political nightmare. I'm not here because of politics. I'm here to do what is right for my city. Members of the Joint Revenue Committee seem open to changing the law. The committee will be meeting on the revenue situation for the next several months. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. President Trump unveiled his budget this week, and it's being met with mixed reactions from Wyoming lawmakers. Matt Laszlo has the story from the Capitol on how the budget is being received. The president is proposing massive cuts to safety net programs like Medicaid and Meals on Wheels in order to pay for a defense buildup. He also wants to slash the Environmental Protection Agency's budget by 30 percent, while also cutting the Interior Department's budget by 11 percent, which critics say would cripple national park funding. Wyoming's lawmakers aren't getting into the specific cuts, though. Take senior Senator Mike Enzi. He's chair of the Senate Budget Committee. In his committee's hearing on the budget, he praised the broad outline of the document. I applaud the aggressive approach contained in the president's budget to reorganize and reform both programs and federal agencies to ensure that they are both effective and efficient. I would also like to commend the president and Director Mulvaney on proposing a budget that balances It's been years since the White House has even attempted a balanced budget. But here in this very first budget proposal, President Trump has provided a plan to get to balance. Enzi knows the annual budget dance well. The saying is, the president proposes, Congress disposes. Of course, this is merely the first step in the 2018 budget process. While the president has his plan, the United States Constitution instills members of Congress with key tax and spending functions and with the responsibility to ultimately decide what our nation's fiscal priorities will be. Enzi takes that job seriously, but he says he's also taking the president's budget seriously. While some are expressing concern over the budget, Enzi claims to be open-minded. Budgets are an incredibly important part of governing because they're the fiscal blueprints for the nation. It's crucial that Congress and the President work together to confront rapidly growing deficits born from our government's habitual overspending, which plagues America and its taxpayers. But Democrats say the budget is dead on arrival and are promising to do all they can to gut it, especially provisions that take care of the oil and gas industry while slashing the budget of the Environmental Protection Agency. Virginia Democrat Don Beyer says those cuts are unacceptable. I mean, the, the most important impact it's going to have is on the quality of our, our environment. You can't go take 30-plus percent cuts and 25 percent of the workforce and not have it really affect the quality of our air, the quality of our water, our ability to move forward on environmental protections. Byer says the winds from the oil and gas industry in the budget reveal the true power of their lobbying efforts in recent years. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're trying to de-emphasize all the alternative fuels. And, and yeah, look, the, the Koch brothers have played an incredibly major role in the Republican ascendancy in America, and they're getting paid back right now. Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney, a strong supporter of energy, is focused on other things. He promised that he was going to rebuild the military, and the budget fails to do so. While Democrats are complaining that the president is proposing blasting through spending caps on the defense side of the budget while slashing social programs, Cheney sees it differently. She says the military needs much more than $600 billion next year. So we're at a really dire moment in terms of the security of the nation and the condition of the armed forces, and uh, we can't do what we need to do at 603. 
Wyoming's junior Senator John Barrasso disagrees. So what he gets right is that he has more money for military, uh, takes a look at some entitlements, uh, because we're addicted to spending in this country and we got to get that under control. Still, Barrasso says he and other Republican Party leaders are planning to overhaul the document. The president's budget is just a recommendation. Uh, it's kind of a direction that they're pointing. Lawmakers in both parties are now in the driver's seat when it comes to writing the nation's spending bills. But President Trump will have the final say because he's now wielding a veto pen, which has critics worried the government could face a shutdown this fall if lawmakers drastically rework the president's priorities. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. When we come back, we'll look at concerns over Title X funding in Wyoming. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio. I'm Bob Back. Following the presidential election, family planning centers in Wyoming saw a sharp increase in women seeking long-term contraceptives, but that has slowed a bit. As Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen reports, concern now centers around funding and health care access. Planned Parenthood clinics across the country saw an unprecedented rise in donations soon after the election in November, mainly because of threats to its future funding. However, it was recently announced that six different clinics in the region will soon be closing their doors, including Wyoming's single branch in Casper. Adrienne Mansoneres is a leader with Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains, the affiliate that oversees the clinic in Casper. She says the decision to close the medical center was not an entirely financial one. In part, it's because patients in Wyoming have access to care from a variety of providers. Mansonera says the clinic in Casper was seeing about 500 patients a year. When the clinic closes in July, Mansonera says she's expecting those patients to be able to get care from other providers in town, and right now they are coordinating that transition. So we will be reaching out to folks um, via a letter or an email. Oftentimes we make phone calls just to ensure that we're connecting with our patients to make sure that there is a smooth and trusted continuum of care to other providers. Those other providers include the local community health center, as well as the Casper Natrona County Health Department, which is the Title X service site for the county. The Wyoming Health Council oversees 12 Title X agencies and their satellite clinics across the state. WHC Executive Director Susie Marcus says about 8,000 Wyomingites receive care from these clinics a year. You know, we serve anyone who comes through our doors to request um, reproductive health care. But our priority population is people who are vulnerable living with low incomes. For Wyomingites living at or below the poverty line, they can receive care at no cost. At higher levels of income, there's a sliding fee scale. This is all thanks to the Title X Family Planning Program, which was specifically designed to provide services to low-income or uninsured people. For many of those 8,000 Wyomingites that receive care from Title X clinics, it is oftentimes the only doctor they will see and the least expensive way to get services like mammograms, pap smears, as well as STD testing and counseling. Marcus says they try to reach as many patients as possible with the program to fill any gaps in care. Our funding is very, very small, and we stretch it as far as we can, um, but we're not able to reach the entire state. There are nine counties in Wyoming where there are no Title X clinics, and some of these counties are among the 18 that also have primary care shortages. Marcus says some people will travel to other communities for care, but rural geography and weather make that challenging. The Wyoming Department of Health had been providing contraception to public health clinics without Title X funding, but Marcus says that service was recently cut by the Wyoming legislature. So now we have some non-Title X funded communities out there that do not have that service. And it's those places that concern Marcus, more so than Casper or other towns with Title X clinics. However, those clinics are certainly facing challenges. Funding is one issue, but a specific challenge those clinics have faced since the presidential election has been the surge in demand for long-acting reversible contraceptives, or LARCs. 
Many patients were concerned that access to contraception would become limited under the Trump administration, so they sought out IUDs and implants that could last through the new administration's years. And we have always had a pretty high demand for LARCs. So we offer our services on, you know, that sliding fee and at zero pay. But then we work very, very, very hard to provide the patient's preferred method of contraception. If someone who is fully subsidized and on zero pay comes into a Title X clinic and requests a LARC, Marcus says they want to provide that to the patient. But the problem is that LARCs are very expensive to keep in supply. Marcus says they're now working with the Wyoming Department of Health on a project to increase access to LARCs across the state. The other issue the council is trying to resolve is how to provide overall health care services in rural areas with limited funds. One idea is to use telehealth as a way to connect patients in more remote areas over the phone or video chat to a nurse practitioner in order to get a contraceptive prescription. We would still have to find a way to um, address, you know, those issues that need to be addressed in person, you know, the physical um, aspects. But still, we could provide some of that contraceptive care, I think, through telehealth. Despite some initial concern, Marcus says she remains hopeful that Title X funding will not be reduced by Congress. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. President Trump's budget proposal calls for the elimination of the 21st Century Community Learning Centers program, which would save about $1.2 billion. But across the country, this program is a primary source of support for after-school and summer programs that serve students in low-income communities. There are over 50 programs in Wyoming that would be affected. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter Tennessee Watson spoke with Linda Barton, who's the director of the Wyoming After-School Alliance, about why summer camp matters. Summer is an extremely important time for uh, programming because particularly when it comes to our uh, low-income students, we know that through the research that students who are in that socioeconomic category really do not have the kinds of opportunities, enrichment opportunities, that more affluent families are able to do for their children. So that would include field trips and uh, longer projects that can, take, can span a longer period of time. And it also really helps to minimize summer learning loss. And that is a critical piece when we look at uh, summer, the summertime opportunities. Most of our kids actually, particularly in that socioeconomic status group, really lose learning over the summer. And programs that operate both, do both academic enrichment as well as uh, in other enrichment activities that help support and maintain uh, learning throughout the summer. So when kids go back to school in the fall, uh, they're, they're not behind. And we have research that shows that those children that participate in after-school programs versus those do not, in that same, I, I want to clarify, in that same socioeconomic status group, uh, do much better when they start school in the fall. And for our younger listeners out there who uh, might be hearing something that sounds dangerously similar to school. Um... <laughs> yeah, it's not. I can assure them it is not. Yes, they will be learning but they won't know that they're learning because it'll be done in such an engaging process that learning becomes fun. And so given that school's going to let out for summer vacation in early June, and this is an exciting moment for kids, but what does that look like for parents and in particular working parents in the state of Wyoming? Well, that's another really important point to bring up because what we know is it really allows our working parents to feel uh, comforted in knowing that their children are safe, they're in structured environments, they're going to be learning uh, for several weeks during the summer, most likely all day long, and they can rest assured that their children are being not only 
provided that safe learning environment, but they're also learning and they're being provided opportunities that working parents have a hard time in providing to their children when they're working. And we understand, and we know for a fact that the employers actually lose productive time because parents are worried about what's going on with their children when they're not involved in an after-school program. And that really can look like many different things. It can look like a, a school-based summer program. It can look like a parks and rec activity. Anything that we want to talk about um, helping to keep children occupied uh, in fun, engaging activities during the summer. What is the status of access to low-cost or free programs in the summer? Well, all of our federally funded uh, 21st Century Community Learning Center programs under that statute actually do run summer programs. The um, consistency in it is is different from community to community in terms of the length of time that they are operating in terms of weeks and in terms of daily hours, really is a function of the funding that they have. Our programs are, I don't know that I want to say required, but part of their task when they are receiving federal funds is to offer summer programming. It's a very important component of the work that we do. Our concern is going into 2018, of course, and the zeroing out of 21st Century Community Learning Centers, which we are still uh, heavily advocating for the continuation of those funds. And for a parent who is struggling to figure out how to piece together um, programs and care for a kid over the summer, what resources would you recommend? Well, uh, basically, in their communities, programs exist either at least one, and depending on the size of the community, there could be several options. They should take a look at uh, their school district, uh, summer programming. Many of our programs are school-based, which means they do operate under the auspices of their school districts. And then, of course, we have community-based programs, such as the YMCAs and the Boys and Girls Clubs and Park and Rec affiliations. So they should uh, really take a look at those areas. They should take a look at what's happening uh, over the summer through their school districts and also community-based resources. Hopefully they have a, a way of navigating that. But if they do not understand or know what's going on in their community, they can always call us. Great. That's Linda Barton, the director of the Wyoming After School Alliance. Thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you for inviting me to join you today. I really appreciate it. When we come back, we'll discuss the August Kleps and hear from a Jackson climber who has an interesting story. This is Open Spaces. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. Jackson, Wyoming is all about extremes. Folks from across the country flock to the mountain town to summit peaks, to ski fresh powder, and to party. Athletes are revered for going over the edge, whereas those who fall into addiction are not. But what if the underlying cause of an avalanche death and a drug overdose are one and the same? I mean, Public Radio's Tennessee Watson explores one program that's taking advantage of that connection. Ripping down the Tetons on a snowboard has landed Tony in the Jackson Hospital a bunch of times. I'm not allowed in this hospital anymore. But that's not why the ER docs don't want to see him again. I've been in there 50 times, 50 times, to detox from alcohol because I've been so saturated with it. And that's just at this hospital. Tony's hesitant to tell the world just how bad it's been, so he's asked to go by his first name. He spent the better part of his adult life trying to get clean. He's been in and out of rehab 12 times and been to thousands of AA meetings. In fact, he hosts a meeting. But it took a major tragedy for him to get out of what he describes as a vicious relapse cycle. Uh, Two years ago, my girlfriend fell down and 
drunk with me, an alcoholic too, busted her head open, her brain came out of her head, died right in front of me. I gotta remember that stuff. Because if I don't, then I'm gonna go back to that. Yeah. He got real about turning his life around. That's when he found the Mind Strength Project, which incorporates physical exertion and problem solving. Ryan Burke is the facilitator of the project. And like Tony, Burke came to a turning point in his life through loss, when his close friend died in an avalanche. And I asked him towards the end, like, he was doing all these first ascents, multiple repels, like, super dangerous. And I asked him, like, you know, why do you keep going? And he just, like, kind of tapped his arm, like, he kind of had a heroin addiction. The death of his friend helped Burke see a big overlap between athletics and addiction. You know, without moderation, we can go overboard in either genre. So I saw that in my own life with athletics where people were dying in avalanches, dying rock climbing. But I also saw it in addiction where people kept trying to chase that initial high and they always wanted more, 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 more. Burke wanted to help break that cycle. He's a world-class mountaineer who's constantly putting himself in risky situations. Last year, he ran the length of the Tetons. That's 50 peaks stretched over 102 miles in one push. Today, Burke is setting up crash pads under two angled climbing walls that jut out into a gym. Then he positions two giant fans across from each other. This session of the Mind Strength Project is the ultimate merger of the athlete and addict communities because most of these guys are both. A lot of them are here through a court-mandated program, and they're skiers, climbers, mountain bikers. And Tony, the snowboarder, is here too. What's up, Tony? Welcome to the club. Burke convenes the group and explains what they're in for. Why this program is unique is because we're doing stuff under simulated exposure. So for instance, in a minute, we'll turn on those fans, and that creates the automatic fight-or-flight response when you get some exposure. Like if you're high in the mountains and you feel a wind versus a calm day, your brain's going to go a little haywire. Uh, we're going to do some things bouncing on a ball. We're going to do some things blindfolded. So these are all things that automatically spike um, your fight-or-flight response. And we're going to try to see how we do under those. Burke runs through some of the ways the body can help calm the mind down. His first suggestion? Licking your upper lip. Why would that help me? When someone licks their lip, what are they starting to do? Snowboarder Tony is also a chef, and he has the answer. Salivating, right? So if I'm salivating, that means I'm not running away from a predator. It means I'm ready to eat prey. Because the salivation says it's a signal to your brain saying everything's okay up here. Burke says it's all about using your body to trick your brain. And so if I'm laughing, I'm not really worried about a tiger, right? My brain, my body needs to know that, right? And so when you smile, you're actually, your peripheral vision expands. So therefore you can see more options. Burke explains the rational part of the brain gets shut down by fear. Today's goal is to practice using the body to calm the mind, to get logic back online. For some, that practice might eventually mean saying no to a beer or staying home when avalanche danger is high. And for others, it might mean overcoming the blinding panic preventing them from being able to see the next climbing hold. Whatever the scenario, the idea is not to have your choices limited by fear. So Burke fires up the fans, and in pairs, they move through the circuit. Sprints and burpees scaling the climbing wall blindfolded stepping from box to box with heavy weights in their hands. Then bouncing on a ball while being blasted by two big fans, they have to find five inconsistencies in two almost identical photos. Periodically, Burke throws dodgeballs at their heads. It might sound torturous and absurd, but snowboarder Tony, who was initially mandated to get treatment by the court, is sticking with it voluntarily. To me, it's like creating neuro, positive neuropathways in my brain. Um, and a positive neuropathway in my brain isn't sitting in a group setting while I'm doodling. I have to have exercise in my life, you know what I mean? This is the only reason I'm in this town in the first place. I would have never, you know, lived here. This is a big, big ski mountain, ski town, you know? Thanks to the Mind Strength Project, now when someone offers him a PBR, he no longer thinks about beer. Instead, he thinks of the project's mantra. Pause, breathe, repeat. For Wyoming Public Radio... I'm Tennessee Watson. Wyoming is scrambling to prepare for the August 21st total solar eclipse, which could attract so many people here that it'll double the state's population. But one thing many people may not be prepared for is what to watch for in a total solar eclipse. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards sat down with the University of Wyoming astronomer Mike Pierce to get some tips. 
Pierce says this eclipse is known as the Great American Solar Eclipse because the shadow of it will race at almost 2,000 miles an hour across the entire U.S., from Oregon to South Carolina. Yeah, eclipses of the sun occur about twice a year somewhere on the Earth, but the path, the shadow that the moon casts on the Earth is very narrow. It's about on the order of 30 to 50 miles wide. Uh, because the moon and sun appear almost exactly the same size. So that means that the shadow is very narrow, and so at any one point on Earth, um, an eclipse is really rare. Yeah. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about what exactly is a total solar eclipse? What, what is the science there? So in a total solar eclipse, that alignment between the sun, the moon, and then any given point on Earth has to be in a perfect straight line. Uh, the moon's orbit is tilted compared to the Earth's orbit around the sun, and that's why we don't have an eclipse, a solar eclipse at every new, uh, new moon, you know, uh, because sometimes the shadow like passes above the Earth, sometimes below the Earth, and so it's only about twice a year where the shadow actually hits the Earth. Can you talk about the five phases of, of an eclipse. Yeah, so um, uh, it's sometimes called first contact because this is the when the shadow of the moon begins to cover part of the sun, or if you like, the backside of the moon. The process continues as the moon moves around the earth. Uh, it covers up more and more of the sun. These are called partial eclipses when the moon partially covers the sun, and those aren't particularly rare. But for the total eclipse, the moon has to move precisely in front of the sun. And so when that happens, that's called second contact. And then the moon is um, completely blocking out the bright light from the sun. So it'll get dark, kind of like twilight. Birds will begin to roost and chirp. Uh, temperatures will drop. Animals start acting strangely. People start acting strangely. and. Um, for the August 21st event, that will last about two and a half minutes. And it's really quite spectacular. It's one of these ooh and ah moments that, that uh, young people that see it will remember. They'll tell their grandkids about it. And then as the sun starts to peak out, for, as the moon moves away, that's called third contact. And then the partial phases um, continue again, but in reverse, this will progress until the moon moves off the sun, called fourth contact, and then uh, the event is over. Yeah, and there's some parts of the that total eclipse um, that maybe you could talk a little bit about. Like, for instance, what's the diamond ring? The diamond ring effect occurs just before and just after the total coverage when, because of the irregular uh, shape of the moon, it's like got mountains and valleys and things, the sun just peeks through at like one point. And so what you'll see is like a ring, the corona, and then a really bright spot that people uh, talk about looking like a diamond ring in the sky. So, in, and how can people um, safely look at the total solar eclipse because it can be it can be kind of dangerous to look at it with a naked eye, right? Right. Um, first and foremost, that that's one thing that we want to emphasize is that people should be very careful looking at the sun. But there's nothing special about the sun in the sense that uh, when there's not an eclipse, you can glance up at the sun for a second or two and it it doesn't damage your eye. And it's the same during an eclipse, but. Uh, what tends to happen is that people want to stare at the sun, and then and then it's dangerous. So there are different techniques for looking at the sun. When it's totally eclipsed, it's perfectly safe to just look at the sun. You can even look at it with a pair of binoculars, as long as you're prepared to look away, you know, as soon as, as the eclipse is over. Uh, one of the more popular ways is to buy a pair of uh, solar eclipse glasses, you can buy little solar filters that you can put on uh, binoculars or small telescopes. But if you don't have that, you can just point a small telescope or a pair of binoculars, say, at the sun with a mounted on a camera tripod, and then just project an image of the sun down onto the ground, let's say a piece of cardboard or something like that. 
and then you can focus the sun's image and then you can see the progression as the moon covers up more and more of the sun uh, and you can view that then uh, completely safely. You know, what is the, um, the umbra and the penumbra? What are, what are some of those terms that people can learn about? Okay, the umbra is the actual shadow, the dark shadow that races across the earth. So that would be the uh, location within the shadow where the um, uh, sun is totally covered. And the penumbra is anywhere within the shadow where the sun is partially covered. So when people in Wyoming in the central area see the, uh, the sun totally eclipsed, they're within the umbra. But then outside of that, let's say from Laramie, you would see the sun become a very thin crescent, and then that crescent will start to get larger again because we're just too far south. And and in in that case, we're within what's called the penumbra. So they wouldn't be able to see like the corona and some of those other, those flares and things like that. Right, absolutely. And so I emphasize this whenever I talk to people, you must be on the path of totality. You'll read that the sun is 99% eclipsed or something like that, but that's just nothing. That's because um, it will get maybe slightly darker, but other than that, you won't really notice anything. To to really experience the eclipse, you need to be within the umbra where where the path of totality is. And and what happens if there's bad weather? Ah. Uh, Uh, If there's bad weather, it's just uh, crying shame Um, because there are people that travel thousands of miles to see an eclipse, and sometimes it's cloudy. But one of the things that makes Wyoming special, I think, for the August event is that the weather is expected to be so good here compared to the rest of the country. So that's the reason why of all the places along that umbra, everybody is just saying, you know, hotels and, and campgrounds have been booked out for years for this. And that's why it's because we have so much more sun. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, um, of course, there are people traveling to um, locations all along the eclipse path. But uh, Wyoming has been kind of singled out on some websites and some magazines as having, you know, the, the least chance of clouds as uh, compared to other places. But yeah, I think Casper is expecting about 50,000 people, and they're expecting the population of Wyoming to double. So they're expecting about 500,000 people. Thank you so much for taking some time to come in and tell us all about solar eclipses and why they are so cool. Oh, thank you for your interest. That was University of Wyoming astronomy professor Mike Pierce speaking with WPR's Melody Edwards. To see maps and diagrams of the Great American Solar Eclipse, you can visit us on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Speaking of the eclipse, other entities in Wyoming are preparing for the event, including the state parks. Administrator Dominic Bravo tells us that it should be busy. So we anticipate that the parks will probably be as busy as we have on a 4th of July weekend at Glendo, um, give or take a, a couple extra thousand uh, here or there. So so for us, um, we're planning for as many as we can feasibly um, and, and safely fit into the parks that we have in the, the path of totality, and um, that's what we're really looking forward to. And, and what parks would be impacted the most, do you figure? So right now, of uh, Boysen State Park, uh, Glendo State Park, uh, Guernsey State Park, um, Edna Kimball Wilkins, um, pretty close to Casper, and then Fort Fetterman is one of our historic sites in the Douglas area. So all those um, parks are basically right in the path of totality. So what we are hearing is that the parks, they're, they're going to be sold out. People won't be able to get in. Uh, I'm sure you're hearing the same rumors. Would you like to dispel a couple of those? Yeah, so we still have um, many of the uh, day-use permit uh, or advanced purchased uh, day-use permits available, and those are available, I believe, until the end of June. Um, so folks can go onto our website and actually purchase the, the day-use passes ahead of time to get into their favorite park that's in the path of totality, um, which are good for August 21st, and actually come with some collectible um, uh, solar eclipse glasses. So they're branded. Um, it allows you to actually look at the eclipse and are probably a great item for the scrapbook. Um, so those are still available. And then on the day of, um, we'll actually have uh, folks at all of our fee booths, um, we're even sending people from headquarters up to work uh, many of the, the busy parks 
um, and we'll have uh, folks available as, as folks come into the parks to be able to come in for the day um, as well. So yes, it'll be very busy, um, but we will not be at capacity and we'll just be uh, making sure we can maneuver folks uh, in and out and, and you know, have them come in and enjoy the day and, and hopefully get home as safely as they can. So the, the day use, for that's generally for folks that want to camp? Um, so the day use is just for um, um, just for that day. So August 21st, the day of the eclipse, all of our reserved camping spots for those parks that are in the, the path of totality are already reserved. However, there still is first come, first serve um, um, camping available at, at many of the parks, although, again, that's going to be pretty difficult um, probably to come by. Our recommendation at this point in time has been to uh, stay at other parks that are still close uh, and within driving distance. For instance, uh, Kerr Gowdy State Park, um, you know, Sinks Canyon State Park. There's areas that are are still close to the the, the path of totality, um, or at least even on the the fringes of, of the eclipse um, that we would recommend. You know, Keyhole State Park up north, um, everywhere is pretty close to a day of you know within a day's driving distance um, to stay at some of our other parks that have camping available. Are you just hearing from people all over the country? Um, all over the country, all over the world, um, we've had a lot of folks that are, are excited to come to Wyoming. Um, obviously, uh, the eclipse cuts through most of the United States, everywhere from Oregon all the way out to, you know, South Carolina. But I think the the reason that Wyoming is, is known is just because of our open space and uh, you know wide open skies, and, and usually for the most part, knock on wood, um, you know, clear skies during that time period. It's a you know in, in the 11 o'clock hour, give or take uh, minutes. Um, that morning on August 21st. Okay. So again, if, if folks want a day use permit again, you get, would you give, re-give that date again? Yeah. So they're available until June 30th and they can just go to our, uh, uh, or sorry, wildparks.org is our website. Um, so wildparks.org and they can just go there and they can, uh, uh pick up the day use in advance, uh, permit. Dominic Bravo, the state parks administrator, always nice having you on our program and thank you so much. When we come back, we'll get an update on problems at the Midwest School and hear from students educating others on recycling. This is Open Spaces. This is Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. A K-12 school in northeastern Wyoming is preparing to reopen this fall. The Midwest School closed a year ago due to a leak from an abandoned gas well. A new ventilation system has been installed, and the first round of air sampling tests show encouraging results. Wyoming Public Radio's Cooper McKim reports. It's a sunny day outside Midwest School in northeast Natrona County, as mud-swept trucks pull into a gas station across the street. It's been raining all day, but yes, it's turning into a beautiful day. That's Sue Green. She serves food inside the gas station. She's also the mother of three students from the Midwest School. Um, the one just turned 15, the one's about ready to turn 12, and the other one is five and a half. Since May of last year, her kids have to take a 40-minute bus ride to Casper. She says it's been hard having them so far away. For instance, she's missing the annual athletic banquet to celebrate Midwest's best athletes. And unfortunately, because our school's closed, it's in Casper. And so I work till 5, it starts at 5.30. It's the same for concerts, graduations. Green says the school is so much of the town itself. I mean, it's such a huge part of this community. Not having our kids around has just been really hard on everybody. Midwest School shut its doors after staff and students smelled gas-like odors, which came from an abandoned well that led to levels of CO2 that were 20 times higher than recommended. The school is near the Salt Creek oil fields operated by the Texas Oil and Gas Company Fleur de Lis, or FDL. CO2 was finding its way out of the well through small cracks underground and rising up into the school. The Natrona County Health Department says the gas displaces oxygen, causing dizziness and headaches. It also carries organic compounds like benzene, which can cause cancer. Kelly Weidenbach of the department says he found benzene at 200 times the acceptable level. When the school was evacuated, there was an, an immediate environmental emergency at the school. Weidenbach says the county had never seen or dealt with a gas leak emergency like this and had to call in federal agencies for help. The department surveyed students and staff to see if they had any symptoms after inhaling the gases. She says kids were showing symptoms consistent with the gas leak. And we saw a very significant drop off in those symptoms once the people were removed from the school and from that environment. 
Since last May, after shutting down the school, the health department has coordinated with FDL, the school district, and other stakeholders to determine the best plan of action. But that plan took several months. And I think all of us would have liked to see that happen quicker. First, the well had to be resealed and replugged. Then an air monitoring system had to be installed, as well as an entirely new ventilation system. Doug Tunison is a facilities project manager with Nostrona County. He says an effective ventilation system would stop gases from getting into the school. And the real, the real danger is if it gets inside the building, then it gets trapped and the concentrations can build up. Recently, the Texas oil and gas company who owned the well paid for the new system, which is called vapor mitigation. It's a network of pipes under the school that suctions any unwanted gases from rising inside. Tunison points to a blueprint of the system on his computer screen. It collects the vapor that's underneath the school and exhausts it out above the school before it ever gets into the building. On March 3rd, the school district tested the new system, and it worked. Results showed no contaminants were above the accepted level. That was pretty much over the hump, so... A combination of air monitoring and what Tunison describes as an over-designed ventilation system means the school is safe. Tunison says parents should not worry about sending their kids back to Midwest. Sue Green says the gas leak barely fazed her. They live in a town with an oil field, after all. I choose to live here. I love living here. I love raising my family here. I'm just glad it's almost over. The school district still needs the results from three more air sampling tests, but Tunison believes the school should be set to reopen in the fall of next year. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Cooper McKim. Over the last year, UW Lab School students have been participating in something called Project Citizen, a nationwide initiative that promotes democratic engagement. The school had three groups working on different projects, all having to do with waste. One of those projects is helping Laramie restaurants go green. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard reports. When middle schoolers at the lab school in Laramie first heard they were going to be studying garbage, their reactions were about what you'd expect. Everyone in the class kind of shrugged their shoulders and went, okay, you know, and we were all just mellowed out about it and not excited. That's eighth grader Yusuf Abdel Khadr. In his same project citizen group is fifth grader Declan O'Connor. He says at first they decided to try and make their school cafeteria greener. Our first project was to get to get rid of um, styrofoam lunch trays. And so we had them downstairs and we, like, we researched all about it. And when we got rid of them in like a phone call and like an email. After successfully getting rid of the styrofoam lunch trays, the kids decided to broaden their project. They reached out to Laramie's mayor, Andy Somerville, to see what could benefit the entire Laramie community. So we really kind of settled on this idea that they would work to try to encourage restaurants to use more environmentally friendly containers. Fifth grader Catcher Panel explains. Clamshell boxes are made out of what you um, would think of as styrofoam, but they're actually called polystyrene. They're thin and they don't really biodegrade. We thought it was an issue that we were just putting things in our landfill that don't biodegrade. And plus it the, the box is 98% air, so we're basically just filling an expensive hole with air, and we didn't think that seemed right. That's when they became the Polly Punchers. Mayor Somerville says before talking with them, she hadn't really known much about polystyrene containers and was surprised at the kids' knowledge and the scope of their idea. I was very impressed with them in, in taking a different, trying to look at all the different angles and put themselves in other people's shoes, the business owner's shoes, the consumer's shoes, in trying to come up with some suggestions that were feasible. The Poly Punchers identified 20 restaurants that either didn't recycle or didn't use green takeout containers. Then they created a website with spreadsheets that compared price points on different to-go options. When Abdel Khadr researched the economics of switching containers, he found that compostable containers are 10 cents more per box than polystyrene. It's hard to argue that what we're doing could help your business. And so talking to people who are obviously looking at everything from a financially viable lens, it's really hard to come up to them with an environmental lens and put it in their eye. It's, it's really hard, harder than I thought. Once they had done the research, they began reaching out to businesses, including the general manager of Roxy's on Grand, Garrett Hensley. You know, and I got a phone call from them, and they kind of told me a little more about what they're doing, and 
you know, with kids like that, it's a no-brainer for us to get behind them and show them that the community supports them. Every week, Hensley has to order around 80 new-to-go containers for Roxy's. Until recently, the regular takeout boxes were black polystyrene. But after talking with the poly punchers, Hensley made the switch. Now, almost everything Roxy's orders is biodegradable. 16-inch pizza box, 12-inch pizza box. These are for any other items, and these brown paper bags, we use these instead of plastic bags. And they also have our logo branded on them. And then these cardboard to-go boxes fit perfectly in there. The only thing plastic that we still have is straws. Hensley grew up in Laramie, too. So he says it was important to him to show kids that they could make a difference. You know, we wanted to be one of the first and kind of help get other businesses to follow through with them. I don't know if they've had responses from other businesses, but that's definitely our aim is to help them get it started and lead the way for them. Of the 20 restaurants the Polly Punchers identified, eight have made eco-friendly changes like Roxy's. Some of the kids are disappointed more restaurants haven't taken the plunge yet. But 8th grader Hank Shaver puts it into perspective. Well, I think that good change of any kind is better. I mean, it would have been better if we had a bigger change. But the fact that we changed something in our community is just kind of amazing. And Catcher Panel points out the fight isn't necessarily over. When we were talking to the restaurants, we had a couple of them, right? We had a couple that said, we'll think about it. And Roxy's was one of them that said we'll think about it. And what, three weeks later, they switched to the compostable box. So I guess there still is a little hope that they'll switch by themselves. On Tuesday, the students will present their work to judges to be considered for Project Citizens National Competition. But even if they don't advance, they have partnered with the Laramie Chamber Business Alliance to make sure the Polly Puncher's mission lives on. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed part of the show, you can find it on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can find this in other programs and individual segments as well. Anna Rader is our web editor. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.